the way that we experience and our thoughts and our feelings towards things, the stories we tell ourselves about the world have a major impact on sort of our thoughts and our feelings. That was Dr. Jason Frischman. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This week, we explore the importance of stories we tell ourselves, how we can reframe those stories and avoid the pitfalls of a zero-sum game mentality. If you haven't already, check out the website, thedadmindset.com, where you can subscribe to get updates and show notes. Also, during this chat, Jason and I discuss a joke that actually made me cry with laughter. If you want to hear it, stick around till the end of the show. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Jason Frischman. Dr. Jason Frischman, welcome to the show. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and the Journeyman Foundation? So for the last 25 years, I've been a working psychologist and psychotherapist. And in that time, primarily worked with what I call a boys to men population, working in residential treatment centers, clinics, hospitals, all of that. And about five-ish years ago, I started the Journeyman work, the foundation work. And a lot of what that was all about was really taking the work that I did with men in my office out into a community. And right now it's global community. I have people that, you know, are all over that we work with, but I found that men in my office, in our closed door, sacrosanct, secret little therapy space, we would have powerful experiences, but then they'd walk out of my office into a culture that wasn't supporting them. And a quarter of the gains were gone just because as soon as they walked out, they had someone honking at them and they were, you know, this like dominance-based society wasn't supportive. And so Journeyman is really about helping men and fathers in particular create a new story around fatherhood. And so in that coaching space, I do public speaking and workshops, but Primarily, I have a coaching group that I would run with dads where we meet on a regular sort of weekly session as well as there's a curriculum and they work through sort of building foundational adventures in their life. Yeah. And how can we use the metaphor of an adventure or the journey as a way of growth and development? We could talk about that only for the next hour or so. But (laughs) so that has been the work of my entire life. My master's degree is in adventure therapy and my doctorate degree focused on narrative therapy. So I'm an adventure storyteller, a storytelling adventurer, however you want to go. And so that metaphor of journeys and adventures has always been the way I look at the world. And until about 15 to 18 years ago, I was looking at the definition of journey and adventure through the hero's journey, the story of the hero goes off and battles dragons and comes back with the secret flower that saves the village, that kind of thing, right? And I love that story. But then, particularly when I had my own kids... I started thinking like, I'm not off battling dragons anymore and I'm wiping butts and cleaning (laughs) toilets and things like that. And I started thinking about it, like when the hero, when the stereotypical hero is off battling dragons, what about everyone that's home, like keeping the hearth warm and the gardens grow and the dishes clean? You know, isn't there an adventure and a journey there? And isn't there magic in that mundane life? Because that's the life that most of us are living most of the time. And a lot of what I developed was really how to have the adventures of every day. Originally, I called them ordinary adventures that didn't test so well. So now I call them foundational adventures. And it's the adventures where it's not grand, it's not epic, it's not legendary, but it's meaningful and it's values-based. And it's what we do in the mundane, everyday world that brings these treasures that, that are fulfilling. But just like there are dragons in the big adventure, we have little imps running around and like getting in the way. And there are obstacles and challenges, even in the everyday. In fact, I would say that those are more abundant because we live in the ordinary everyday. The imps and the challenges, they get in the way every hour. Am I going to do this thing I need to do? How am I going to stay focused? I don't have enough time. You know, all of these things, enough presence. These are challenges that we have to change our relationship to, which is what journeys are all about. It's what adventures are all about. The definition of adventure is often many fold, but by definition, we don't know what's going to happen at the end. 
there is some level of risk, whether it's real or perceived. And, and this is one that's overlooked by the hero's journey, we do it in relationship to other people. And so how to use journey and adventure as a metaphor is really this idea that if we see our lives, our daily lives, our yearly lives, you know, the rhythms of our lives as a journey, then we can use that, like, what's our map? <laughs> what's my goal, my treasure? What, what are my imps and what are my tools that I can use to continue moving forward in a way that's going to support you know, what's my compass? A tool I use is a values compass. How do we use our values to make sure we know what direction we're moving in? You know what I mean? Yeah. It it made me think a little bit of Spike Milligan when he talked about war. And he said, it's basically 99% boredom and 1% terror. And and maybe we have this like unrealistic view of like the hero's journey. It always looks magnificent. And certainly as boys and men, I think we always want to go on that hero's journey to prove our mettle and then return to the village as a man. And, yeah, yeah. and do you think it's sort of the way that we talk about it and run this story through our lives, it, it sort of really takes away the magic from what's around us in the moment every day because every day makes up 99% of our lives and and we're sort of just focused on that the glorious 1% so to speak 100% the phrase i've used for a long time is that the abundance of the hero's journey right it's in every movie it's you know every pixar movie is based on it right every it's in all the stories it's in all that the abundance of that is actually quite harmful and damaging. And I think to all of us, but particularly to men, the themes and the archetypes and the stories that are told in this narrative of the hero's journey, you're right, it makes the rest of the time seem dull. And it also supports a sort of patriarchal view of the dynamics of the world. And so not only does it lessen the significance of homework, work at home. It lessens the importance of that. It also lessens the importance of the sort of interrelated and interdynamic people, you know, relationships between people, right? Because that's not as important as going off and testing yourself, testing your own metal. It's pretty selfish, you know, isn't say, it, like, really? Yeah. Test your metal by being present to the people whom you say you love the most. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is it's a reframe to make us appreciate and make the most of the everyday moments, but also recognize that there is challenge in, in every situation. I mean, certainly as, as far as father is concerned, you couldn't ask for more challenges. I think internally more than anything. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a reframe. It's also this idea that, you know, in the concept of foundational adventures, the truth is, We can't have the big, epic, heroic journeys unless we have a strong foundation. So in my way, the idea of the hero's journey, it's led us to be really unbalanced, right? It's nothing wrong with it. I like the journey. I mean, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I like, you know, I like the stories that are told about it. But without the balance of why it's really like the knight who goes off to battle a dragon, you often don't hear the 20 years worth of practicing with a sword that he had to do, you know, because it was seen as just like nothing, yeah. you know, someone asked me this morning, where is the secret magic of the, of the journeyman? And, you know, of course that's a big question, but one of it is that the treasure is often in the muck. The yeah. treasure is in those times when we're overwhelmed and overtired and anxious and things aren't working right. That's where the treasure is. Yeah. It may, it may when you say that, it sort of brings to mind the Japanese sort of hero's journey of, of Miyamoto Masashi. And and he spent like mm-hmm. you know decades trying to travel and learn and find, but it really sort of gets into the minutiae of every strike with the sword. He was trying to you know figure out how did that guy do that, and 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 the the, the actual story was really about the discipline of training daily and just having a a monomaniacal yes. focus on on ever improvement. And I, I know you've talked in the past about Han Solo. He basically spent three minutes of training and then he was off, you know, fighting battles. Yes, exactly. and, and it's a disproportion. It, 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 it's got skewed the wrong way. You know, actually, when you look at it, the hero's journey has this huge backstory of, of lots of discipline and training. And, and I love that sort of Japanese aesthetic that sort of 
springs to mind when you when you realize like the the craftsman and the actual focus and and zen-like sort of presence that's where the magic is when a lot of zen things are discussed it's it's like that real appreciation of the the here and now and the doing the work not the glory at the end Absolutely. You know, and and love that you said that because, you know, it brings to mind to chop wood, carry water, that phrase. And for me that I often say is discipline. You use that word. The way I see it, the root of discipline is disciple. And so if you're a disciple of something, it means doing it over and over again until you get it just right and then keep doing it. And, you know, in fact, that's the root of why I called it journeyman. Right. On the surface, it looks like it's all about the journey. Right. It's a journey, man. Right. It's a, but, but truly the background of why I chose that for the name of our program is based in the sort of European history of the apprenticeship model. When you become a, you apprentice to a master. And then the middle is that journeyman status. You become a journeyman where in the artisan craft, whether it's blacksmithing or whatever it's going to be, after you're an apprentice, you become a journeyman because you've shown that you can hit the hammer a hundred million times. And now you, because of that, because you're a journeyman, you can't yet leave the master's uh, tutelage, but you can go to neighboring villages and, and do some work and then come home and then practice some more. And there's a real discipline and a disciple par aspect to it. And when it comes to fatherhood and masculinity, we need to be sort of journeymen of those kinds of work. Like I want to be that good at engaging with my own inner self. I want to be that good in relating with my kids. I want to, I want that to be a practice. (laughs) Do you think, you know, do you think that's half the problem with dads that, you know, we have a, usually an away goal and it's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Or I I didn't have the instruction manual. And so I'm just, I feel hopeless. Uh, and I'm sleep deprived. And then you, you maybe look to the, the role models that seem to be acing it. And that just seems light years away. And there's no, there's no appreciation of the, the 20 years of inner work that they've done, or the great foundations that they had instilled in them that to get there. And I suppose there's this, it just looks so disparaging to go, that's a huge mountain. Whereas what we really need to think about is like the, the staircase around the back of the mountain. That's like the gradual sort of long staircase that's actually achievable. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And to know that that's actually where the beauty is. You know, yeah. I, I actually love that you bring up the, you know, the idea of a mountain because to me, you know, it's lovely to be at the top of the mountain and have a, a beautiful view. But I challenge anyone, if like you're on the way up a mountain, sit down and look down. There's a beautiful view there too. Yeah. It's just a different perspective, right? And so as you're going, you're right. Like that is, you know, if we only look at the top of the mountain, then yeah, like it's going to get, uh, you know, overwhelmed real quick. <laughs> yeah. And arguably like life is definitely not a destination uh, you know there's there is one destination and we really don't want to be hurtling towards that so uh <laughs> i suppose we we do tend to focus on this idea that we're going to arrive somewhere whereas really we spend the you know the vast proportion of our lives traveling somewhere and 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 what you're doing then is helping guys appreciate that this is a journey let's let's just appreciate every moment while we're on the way exactly and to know like in that muck is where we can stop. And it doesn't, it's not like being falsely positive or like, Oh, this is hard. Yay. <laughs> it's more about like appreciating like, yeah, this, this sucks. This is hard. Let's see what I can do from it. What can I get from that? How can I glean something from this challenge? Yeah. And you know, I was just going to say, because like appreciate that it's hard, but you said earlier about almost like the direction you're heading in. And can you talk to me about what you use, a, like you have this compass metaphor as well? Because I think that sort yeah. of really ties in neatly with that, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, so the the curriculum that, that I created for the journeyman, it sort of has three phases. The entire sort of circle of the curriculum is about tending. You know, it's about tending to ourselves and those we care about and, and really connecting. And so to go with the T, right, of tending, first, the first phase of the curriculum is training. The second is testing, testing or metal. And then the third is telling, sharing. And so 
in the first one of training, we have two main training elements. The first is that we do is about understanding our imps, right? The thing I was telling you before, right? The obstacles and patterns and behaviors and lessons and old stories that get in the way of what our, our goal and treasure is. And so we do a big piece of work on identifying and naming and understanding our relationship with our own inner imps. And then the next one is about this values compass, because if we are using um, a journey metaphor, it's real easy to, to, to get off the path. And so what I have guys do when they first identify, uh, I call their treasure, their goal for the time we're working together, we then, when we get to the values compass, I say, listen, I want you to pick, and we have a couple of exercises and activities for this, but pick four values that are going that are specifically like if you were living those values, you would be moving towards this treasure. And we talk a lot about how values are often aspirational and they're vague and they're general, like, oh, I care about the earth and the planet. And that's lovely, but they're up here. They're 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 sort of heady. And I want guys to really hone in on their four values that if I know I'm following those, I'm I'm moving towards those treasures. And so then what we do is we talk a lot about how to take those values and put them into action in the smallest unit of value, right? Like yeah. one value. So a value I have is a welcoming home. I want all of my friends to know that if they knock on the door at any time, they'll get a meal and they can hang out. They get warmed up, they can hang out. But the smallest unit of expression of that value is when every night I go and chop wood and bring wood in for our fireplace, because yeah. I want during the winter to have a cozy roaring. It's a wood stove with a glass front and it just makes our living room cozy. Right. And that's a daily action that I could get resentful for. I could be annoyed that I have to do, but when I connect it to this massive core value that I want my home to be welcoming and warm, then I know that I'm on the right path when I can remember that. So what I tell people with the values compass is we pick four values that are um, specifically an, exp an expression of your goal. They move you towards your goal. And now, with a, with, even with a real compass, right, there's three things that have to happen for it to be useful. One is you have to have it labeled correctly, right? Because if north is labeled west, you're going to get lost. And if your values aren't the right ones, not right for you, but like if they're not the, correct, the values that were really expressed – then you're going to go down a different path. So one is it has to be labeled right. Two, you have to know how to use it, which is what we do in the program. We practice using this the, the compass. And three, which is arguably the most important, is you have to know to take it out of your pocket and look at it more often. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? When you know your values and you don't ever check, you can be way off the path before you realize. Yeah. Right? So So we do a lot of training with the imps and the values compass. And once they have that, then we go into the testing and we really do some inner work around how do you express this? How, what actions can you take on the daily that will bring you towards your treasure, which is often things like being more present and connected to your family or your work or your community, things like that. Yeah. So I love the, the, the core value of having a welcoming home. How did you actually discern that? What's the sort of way that you get the guys to work through and figure out their core values? Mm. It's hard. I, I will be really honest. I, I've been interested in values for a long time. I've been a therapist forever, and I haven't found many therapeutic modalities that do values well because they're hard. They're a little amorphous. They're vague. It is a very hard practice. So what we do is there's a couple of things. I start with asking guys to tell me an origin story, right? To tell me a time when the, them in their family or their work, whatever sphere of influence we're working on, where things were going well, where you chose to do some things and they went well. And then I ask my favorite question of all, which is, what does that say about you? What does that say about what you care about or what you think is important? And then that clearly gets to the next thing about values. And so with these guys that, that join the journeyman, they have a particular goal or a treasure. So I ask them the same kind of question. Well, you wouldn't want that goal or that treasure if you didn't have some glimpse of it, if you've never touched it before, you might not even know to look for it, right? So tell me an example 
when you actually held that treasure in your hand? What was it about? What was it? And I get really into like the actions that they take and the things that they do and the, the choices that they made. And then I ask that question, right? What does it say about you and what you care about most? And it's hard. Actually, the group I'm running now, we're in this phase right now. And, and guys are really struggling to voice it because we want to go really big and vague. And I keep pushing. It was like, no, I want you to make be real specific. And some of it is through iterations. I have I have lists of values that the kid, that people can use. They can read through and see which speaks to them. But usually it comes from that really important question of what's what does this say about you? And then sometimes it also is, do you know anybody else who has held that value and what does it say about them? Yeah. So we can look out, we can look outward as well. Yep. Then you mentioned imps earlier and are they, <laughs> do, do the imps sort of, I love that sort of, I, that, that vision, but do you think the imps are, are almost like a, a bit of a signal as well to finding your values? Because obviously it's a part of you that's really sort of, ah, you know, this thing that's happening right now, this is not awesome. And maybe in some respects, they're, they're not even like bad. They're just like, they're actually showing us that our true values, if we tease it out a bit. You're way ahead. Yes. One of the things that we do early on, I talk to people about their imps and a lot of guys will get it very quickly and say, oh yeah, it's that thing that always makes me mad or that, you know, and we're so mired in Western culture in a medical model where when there's a problem, we want to kill it, cure it, cut it out, you know, those yeah. things. And my very first thing that I say is we're not going to do that with your imps. They have a key to your, they have a key. They're in, they probably have a whole history. You know, the, the back, we explore the backstory of your imps, things like that. And I said, our goal is to evolve our relationship with the imps because, and this is something that almost every guy I talked to at first challenges and goes, no, this can't be right. But I tell them, I said, listen, I have not heard of an exception yet where if we could really ask an imp about its directives or what it wants, it wants what's best for you. Your best interests are in its mind, but it's using old tools. It's using old patterns. It's using old stories. And so if we said, hey, what's going on? It might respond by go, what? I've been keeping you safe for years. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing right? my best it's here. Just, Why are you angry yeah, at me? Exactly. And, and so some of the work is in evolving a relationship parts of ourselves that truly looking out for our best interests. But that's a really challenging shift for men to make. Yeah, but I suppose once you discern that, all of a sudden it, it reframes the problem. So that must actually alleviate a lot of the tension as well. A lot of this curriculum I, I practiced and worked with in my therapy office for years and years and years. And I have had clients who once they hit the concept of the imp and like, usually the very first thing I sort of ask them to do is like a detective, look out for that imp for the next two weeks. Like, <laughs> you know, if it's sitting on your head, you know, pounding away, it's a little late. I want you to know when it's down the street and coming towards you. I want to know what size it is, what it smells like, what it sounds are, what it voice sounds like. And I have had clients who after two weeks have said, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to come back anymore, <laughs> which is lovely. I think that's great. That's awesome. So yeah, you know, the, the shift of, of, of externalizing an imp is both one of the very first things we do and one of the most powerful things that happens. Yeah. I, I had um, a situation fairly recently where I, I'm really sort of easily distracted by audio um, and so when I'm sitting in the, in the kitchen trying to, you know, at the kitchen table or something, trying to do some work and if the laundry door has been left open and the washing machine's going, ah, oh, it just rankles me because I keep shutting the door and, you know, no one in the house, I probably haven't even communicated this to people, but it annoys me when it's on and the door's open and it just goes into spin mode and it's completely distracting. And I've been reading through BJ Fogg's book about tiny habits and and i managed to reframe that situation that actually got me quite angry yeah you know, triggered a bit um because i i would just ignore it for the first like 10 minutes and they go oh for, yeah and get up and storm over and, and shut the door but um but i reframed it in the way of i could use it as a prompt and instead of uh, instead of like being annoyed by it, I could actually go, oh that's an opportunity it's a trigger to actually do two mm -hmm. squats and actually be 
yeah so every time i shut the laundry door now nice. I, I do two squats and i'm like yeah that's that's like you know uh, adding to my fitness regime throughout the day because i probably have to do it three oh. times and and it was it was it was like a it was like a magical moment for me it's like huh if i reframe the things that you know annoy me whoa that's a huge opportunity it's that oh i love that's great yeah the our the way that we experience and our thoughts and our feelings towards things the stories we tell ourselves about the world have a major impact on sort of our thoughts and our feelings and you know so yeah it's like the sound if it's just like you know then yeah of course you're not going to get anywhere but i love that idea is like all right when i hear this now you'd have to be aware of your uh, frustration and annoyance early enough to remember that you have a different way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's already like in your head and you're growling, it's almost too late. Yeah, totally. And it's, oh, to be honest, Jason, it's been 10 years in the making that <laughs> like, it's, it's taken me probably, uh, yeah, well, literally sort of nine, nine, nine years, but, um, oh, I, I, but that point about the, the stories we tell ourselves, I mean, that's everything, isn't it? Like every time, that something's going on it's especially when we feel like we've been slighted by someone else and and yeah. and if we're telling ourselves the story of oh that person ignored me or said that thing to embarrass me we we tend to build it up and generally we've missed the mark and you know we're not we we don't have a clue what's going on in their lives and I exactly said, yeah if we if we don't put it down to malice all of a sudden it makes it easier on us as well yeah, I mean, it's it, there's a thought experiment that we used to use. A, a mentor of mine told me about it once before, which is like, you know, what if you went throughout the world assuming generously about everyone you interacted with? And how would that work? And, you know, because it goes against our, you know, we don't have enough energy to do that. I know my mind more than I know anybody else's. So if I'm grumpy or whatever, it's because I'm an infinitely complex person who has all this stuff going on. But if you're grumpy, you're just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And so how do we really challenge ourselves to, like, almost go into any interaction remember, reminding that, like, you know, again, going to values, I have a value that I think people are generally mean well. Yeah. Now I'm wrong a lot and I get taken advantage sometimes because of that, but I'll take that over people generally don't mean well any day. Yeah, actually, my eldest daughter, we read this great book together and it was basically Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. And it teaches rational Whoa. thinking, yeah, through the canon of Harry Potter. And it, about two weeks later, she actually mentioned what you just said, Jason. And, and she talked Ooh. about this idea of fundamental attribution error. You know, when we actually, uh -huh. you know, we, we, we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intent. And, and, and I was blown away that she'd taken this out of the book because she actually mentioned, oh, yeah, obviously there's a you know, case of fundamental attribution error going on here. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. She was, she was like 11 and, and I didn't even know what the thing meant. I couldn't remember it. I actually had to write it down before I fully remembered it. That's awesome. I'm going to get the name of that book and give it to my kids tonight. That's yeah, great. <laughs> if, they love, if they love Harry Potter, it's excellent they because do. it was written <laughs> by uh, a guy who basically teaches rationality. He took the, the story of Harry Potter because everyone understands it. So it links to that. So everyone has the story it understood and then it's just teaching yeah. layering on top but but the the thing that jumped out was that like the first week we started reading it and he looked at me and went harry's really funny in this because there's this real like humor that underlies it and it, it's basically yeah. taught as if you know harry was brought up in a scientific family and he was trying to figure out how magic actually worked using like experiments and stuff and then teaching draco cool. malfoy because he identified him as like the linchpin if he could if he could win him over to this idea of rational thinking then he could basically you know change the the course of like the the the, the death eaters talking about half bloods and all that sort of so it's it's a brilliant story and it's free it's a free pdf download because you know jk rowling she has the rights to everything but she's read this and said yeah, yeah, yeah. this is pretty epic as well so yeah anyone can get it That's and put it on their awesome. kindle <laughs> that's awesome totally into that <laughs> <laughs> no but, but um i think that idea of you know the stories we tell ourselves and that i i love what i've 
heard you talk about like being wonderful as well because that's a story as well isn't it <laughs> oh gosh I'm, I'm glad you take you know I'm, I'm glad you brought that up it's a great story basically my older son and I we have a nice connection and he knows that I really like playing with words and he noticed once that I often write the word wonderful as two words wonderful and he asked me why. And we got to this conversation about being full of wonder. It's pretty awesome. And he's like, well, all right, well, what, what does wonder mean? And we were talking about that. And we came to the idea that wonder, wonder's two meanings are sort of awe-inspired and curious, inquisitive. Like, I wonder. And I'm full of wonder, you know? And he got silent. He got, he got quiet for a few minutes. And he looks at me and he says, um, you know, he, he sometimes struggles with anxiety and he looks at me and he said, I don't think I'd be worried if I was full of wonder. <laughs> and I was like, you know, he was about 11 or 12 at that point. And, uh, I said, all right, well, let's figure out how to make that happen. You know, that's pretty yeah. awesome. And we had this great conversation as to how one could become full of wonder. And it, it sort of blew up into this mindfulness activity that, changes our story right and so step one is is to become present and so we timed it and it takes less than three minutes to practice this but step one about being present is to just go over all five senses what am i experiencing right now with all of those senses and that's it (laughs) you know it just brings you into the moment step two is curiosity and so out of those five senses, what is something that you're experiencing right now that you can engender a little bit of curiosity about? Could be backgrounds. It could be the spinning of the of the of your <laughs> your washing machine. It yeah. could be you know any of the things that you're you're sensorily experiencing. What are you curious about? And then the third one is gratitude, right? And specifically, what are you grateful for when it comes to the thing that you were experiencing and curious about? Just that thing. And if you did it, like I would invite anybody who's hearing this to practice, it takes literally less than three minutes. Get present by thinking of your, of your, your, your senses, pick one of those experiences and get curious about it. And then like, find a way to be grateful for that. Like, Oh, I get to have a washing machine. I don't have to go out to a laundromat or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But inevitably after practicing those three steps, you can step into a place of wonder where you're like, oh, I'm here and I'm feeling good because I'm grateful. And, you know, and that shifts your story and it shifts your experience because, you know, I might go downstairs harried and hectic and be annoyed with my kids. And if I can stop for a couple of minutes, if I can do the, the, it's, I don't know about where you are, but it's almost a joke here in the States where like men spend a lot of time in the bathroom, you know? <laughs> Well, you know, I could be sitting on the toilet and take an extra three minutes. No one will miss me. And I can come out much more in wonder of my experiences and relationships with my kids and my parent, my wife or my, you know, my family. And and everything slows down a little bit. I love that. That It's almost like, you know, you need to put a sign on the back of the door that has that as a prompt. Because it's a great way, like going back to the BJ Fogg thing, of of actually tying it to yeah. a a, a a specific moment in time like you don't even have to set a phone alarm it's there you go to the toilet yes you know every day and so oh, i like that are, are there any other times of the day when you 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 actually sort of force yourself to go through those motions do you have those sort of prompts already in your life yeah i mean i think a, a bigger part of journeyman is sort of the relationship between routines rhythms and rituals and the routines are harder right it's like building a habit and so like you have to i, I often say come hell or high water like i want you to try to build these routines but then once they're in they're established then they're more like rhythms because they you know i could do it 10 minutes later i won't lose it it's the part of what i do and then if we take it to the next step of like making meaning out of it and, and sort of extrapolating a general symbolic nature of the rhythm, that's where we get ritual. And so for me, every morning, I, especially in the winter, we heat with, like I said, with a wood stove. I'm often down first and I'm lighting the stove and our front windows are east facing, which means that I have this moment where I come downstairs, it's dark out. And can I race 
<laughs> well, I, I'm racing the sunrise, you know, can I get the fire blazing before the sun comes up? And in a really mindful moment, that goes back to having a warm and welcoming home. Yeah. Right. So in that moment, I'm starting my day every day and I'm usually up late. So I'm tired and cranky, but I can start every day with this, like, this is my intention for the day. I'm, I'm, I'm creating warmth. I am welcoming the sun. I am, you know, usually the stove is on because I'm making breakfast for the kids. It's almost like when people exercise, they say never miss a Monday workout because it starts the rest of the week. Well, well, my very, the very first thing, as soon as I go downstairs is I literally and metaphorically and symbolically make a warm home. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it would be so easy to sort of, I guess, get, annoyed by the fact ah oh, why am i the one that always has to get up and do this or why why am i up in the dark it would be so easy to tell yourself a story that is kind of productive but actually what, what you're doing is is telling yourself a story that adds meaning and makes you feel good about what you're doing and that yeah that that changes the game completely absolutely and there is so much to that like we're you know sometimes narrative therapy or, or story work can be seen as like, oh, we'll just tell a happier story. And, and it, it's more than that. It's much deeper than that because it's also when, like, for example, if I start to go bitter or resentful, like, why am I doing it? I can recognize like, oh, that's one of my imps. Yeah. And that brings it back. Like, oh, there's that guy again. Okay. <laughs> hey, there you well, are. <laughs> what do I want to do here about that? <laughs> yeah. You know, and that gives us another way, you know, there's a, there's sort of a strategy for like, oh, when my imps show up, how am I going to do this? Why is it showing up now? And so there's the whole practice of that. And so as we look for alternative or deeper stories, right, it's similar to like what we talked about with uh, the hero's journey. Hero's journey is a fine story, but it's sort of almost oppressive because of its everywhere nature and there's more to it. It's only half the story if we really think about it. Yeah. And in our lives, we have the same thing. Yeah. And it definitely feels like the the current stories that we play out, we have the start point. And if like the, the, the victory is at like score 100, we just expect to be able to jump from the start point to 100. What it sounds like you do with Journeyman is is all the work in the middle to actually to add the, the rhythms, rituals that, that help you build that discipline uh, and to work towards that sort of successful end whereas i think in society we just don't do that like no one celebrates doing the work we always want the shortcut it's human nature so it's it's sort of reframing and and telling ourselves stories that that celebrate and make us feel good about the journey absolutely and i would even challenge it even further where like you said like it's about the journey not the end well it goes back to like story structure, right? We're always taught that story has a beginning, middle, and end, right? <laughs> it's all the middle as far as I'm concerned, right? Stories are circular. The messy middle. And so, yeah, yeah it, it really is. And so, you know, there might be a piece of a story that has a beginning, middle, and end, but unless your story is the universe started now and then it ends with everyone died, <laughs> there's always more in the book before and after. So, if we know that, then you're always in the journey. You're always in the middle. Yeah. yeah. And you might have little bits to celebrate that are kind of at the top of a mountain, but you're going to, I hiked the Appalachian Trail years ago. And when I got to the top of the mountain, guess what? There was another mountain. <laughs> There's always another mountain. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What was the Appalachian Trail like? I mean, it, it seems pretty gnarly yet epic. It's actually in many ways, and, and I, I wrote an article about it, I can send it to you, but it's it in many ways it was one of the places where this whole idea was birthed because it's gnarly and epic, but also it's mostly walking. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly just walking. And, you know, like I used to joke that the hardest thing about doing the Appalachian Trail was finding the ability to take five to six months off of my life. Yeah. And yeah. do it. It's a long right? way. Because, you know, the, the the trails are so well blazed. You don't need maps. It's not very, it's not as technical as other big things. So really in many ways, and this is not to minimize anybody's uh, efforts at hiking the trail, but it really is walking, <laughs> going to bed, waking up and walking again. <laughs> <laughs> the majority of people who come off the trail, not having finished what they planned, myself included, 
did it because either they decided I'm done walking or they lost the romanticism of it. Yeah. Because, you know, people talk about the hikers will talk about, you just got to do your miles, do your miles, man. You got to do your miles. Like that's, that's is that it. is that like a running sort of joke when you, you catch up with other people walking the trail? What are you doing? Do them a mile, <laughs> you know, and you know, you there's do your miles and there's, you have to hike your own hike because mm. you're going to go a different pace. You're going to go these things. And so for me, and I did, I came off earlier than I had anticipated because I had a sort of epiphany and knew that I needed to try this experience that I had put off and put off and put off. And coincidentally, the day that I came off the trail, I was offered a job doing that experience. So it worked out, but, uh, but true. Like for me, if I'm really honest, part of it was I was done walking. Yeah. I, I spent five and a half months. I've walked a lot. I was going to say, you know? I read that article and you, you, you walked an awful lot of the Appalachian trail. So it certainly wasn't, you know, I think, and, and I, a part of me could imagine a listener then thinking, oh, he failed. He didn't make it to the end. But uh, I'd actually read your yes. article and I knew that you'd taken a lot from it. And you made a very conscious decision that, wow, I've got what I need. Like what I came for, I've actually got. So I don't need to do that last fifth of the journey or whatever. Absolutely. And, you know, to me, that's one of the most important skills that I think everyone, but I work with men, so I'll say men, you know, one of the skills that men need to do more of is discernment, right? Did I, have I gotten what I need? I have to choose, you know, there's a, a, you know, mature masculinity, I believe, has this, like, we recognize that it's a zero sum game. If I make a left, I can't make a right. And that's okay. Like I, I, you know, it gets rid of FOMO. It gets rid of like this. I need everything all the time. There's a space of like, oh, okay. I have gotten what I need. I'll be, I'll be back in the woods again. But right now it's time for me to move to Boston, you know, or whatever it was. (laughs) Do you think one of the hardest things about fatherhood is that our values change instantly when we become fathers like it, but we don't maybe recognize and, and actually acknowledge that. And so we've got all this baggage from a previous version of ourself. And all of a sudden, we're trying to translate that into what the heck's going on now with sleep deprivation and everything. And if we don't do that sort of rewire, there's all these tensions that build up because we can't be that former version of ourselves or or live aligned with those former values, if we were doing a good job even. Yeah, I, you know, that, that's so well put because... I see guys like my very first journeyman group. One of the guys was like, I am a really good dad and I'm a good guy. It's just when I get in my own way, all of a sudden my partner tells me that I'm like a third kid. And because, yeah, I mean, you know, before kids, we can act like big kids, you know, like, and even when the kids are infants, I often say like, you know, for dads, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. You can be half asleep and just rocking a bassinet. Right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can, you're all right, right? Like you're doing the miles. We're not giving <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> but we're not giving ourselves in a, in in the real way. So you're right. Like values change, priorities change, but our actions don't change quickly enough, often enough, mm. right? Yeah. And so journeyman works with that, but also just that sense of we don't have a lot of rituals when men become fathers. Yeah. And I have a lot of rituals that show the, 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 the new me, right? Like I was, I was a guy, then I was a boyfriend, then I was a partner, then I was a husband. And all of those things have rituals, not that great, but they have rituals associated. But there aren't a lot of rituals for men who become dads. All yeah. of a sudden, that's a new title, a new identity. And we don't have a lot of rituals for identity change. I in, think, our, in our current culture. Yeah. And, and I think for, for me, I, I love this idea of rituals because one of the rituals that we have actually managed to, to build over the past, I don't know, it's probably been years in the making, but it's really consolidated in the last few months is pancakes on a Sunday morning. Like I love, oh, nice. like, and, and like, I, I love sort of, I've come up with it. Well, actually it was my mom came up with a suggestion of using the, the, the sandwich toaster, and just leaning it up slightly because it's nice. actually like a big griddle pan and it can cook like three pancakes at once. I'm like, this is, this oh, is awesome. Nice. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and so I could like cooking the pancakes now is something I look forward to. Like I always make sure on yeah. Saturday we've got the, got the maple syrup. We've got, you know, everything ready, all the ingredients. And, and it, I really enjoy it now because we all sit around the table and that's a ritual mm. that I absolutely adore. 
every Sunday. But I think part of me used, I think, because but the kids have sometimes asked, "Oh, could you make me porridge?" And and I can sometimes sort of think, are they just like using me to like a servant? And there is that sort of imp that pops up. Like I don't want to be the, mm-hmm. I, I'm not the servant here. You know, you don't just put an order in at the kitchen. But it's sort of teasing apart. Like, are they just asking that because maybe they actually prefer my porridge to the way they they're, they're not confident that they can make it like that? Or and it's sort of working mm-hmm. through that. Yeah, I don't want to. So I definitely don't feel used on a Sunday morning making pancakes because I like to think that I've nailed it. But nice. like, <laughs> if, if an order comes in at the kitchen, I, I, yeah, I'm still sort of doing the work there. But uh, I don't know. Maybe if I reframe that, it's like, hey, this is just a phase. Anyway. I'm happy to make some porridge. Yeah, let's let's get it going. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you, and I think you're you're hitting it on the head, which is like, you know, in some ways, our kids do see us as their servants in many ways and like, all right, you know, and we can help them learn how to do it. We can bring them along, but you've got this great ritual for Sunday. And my, my thing is a ritual is generalizable and symbolic, right? So when somebody asks you to make porridge on a Wednesday or whatever, then it's like, Oh, I'm the one who makes for I'm the nourisher. I'm the, you know, like, who am I to this? And, you know, it may not be the kids. intent. They may not know this. It may, you know, and, and they may just selfishly be like, I'm reading a book. I want you to make me breakfast. <laughs> but if we bring that intent to it, yeah, I get to nourish you. I get to, you know, if I can, if I can't, obviously I can't make porridge. I'm running out the door. But if I can, you know, the, the, you know, your kids are not going to ask you for porridge in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can, that's right. It's it's definitely front of mind that this is only for a short while and to just yeah. make the most of it because, you know, these moments, they fly. Like I've really noticed that. You must notice it with your boys. Like they must be big now, the 11 and 14. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and you know what? You won't like in 10, 15, 20 years or so, you might go to one of their houses for pancakes on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we never know what, like, you know, we have a thing. We don't necessarily say grace before meals, but food and meals are a big thing in our house. So what we do just for quick and easy and meaningfulness is we hold hands, we look at each other and we say, yum, (laughs) yum, you know, and something that had evolved was if one of us can't be at the table, the the rest of us are all like we raise our hand, like if mama's out, we raise our hand, we go, mama, like kind of like speak to her not being here. The very first time that I noticed they did that was early on. The kids were little, probably five and two or something like that. And I was like, oh, daddy, we're having daddy meal. Like I threw together, you know, whatever crappy food, like threw something fast <laughs> together. They were, you know, and the five and three-year-olds, they got the candlesticks and lit the candles. When we sat down, they would put their hands out to do this. And then when we said yum, they said mama and invoked her. And this has now been, you know, we've been doing this for 15 years, 14 years. And so your pancakes or the, you know, these, these things that we do with intention don't have to be massive. They don't have to be battling a dragon. They don't have to be saving the realm. They could be eating pancakes, yeah. <laughs> setting the table, you know, like all of those things. And it's really powerful. But it's great because you get the opportunity to do that every day. And sort of when you do yes. turn around your perspective, it's actually a golden opportunity. It's like there are opportunities everywhere. Like if we make a yes. ritual, obviously you don't want to force it, but when you notice something, if you lean in and, and all of a sudden you build it into, you know, either a rhythm and then eventually a, a routine, then, you know, that pays back sort of manifold, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's what, you know, what we model is what, they don't always get it right away, but what we model is the story that our kids are going to be, you know, holding as they grow older and mature and, and, you know, we're the models for that. And so everything that we do, like a lot of the journeyman work is about, you know, I, I, it's not a parenting group. I joke it. We're not like, we'll talk about, timeouts and bedtime and all those things, but it's really a men's group for men's work for fathers. And so as my, as the work, as the guys that I work with sort of really explore their inner world, they're then able, like I've had, had one guy, his goal was to be more present with his kids. And afterwards he said, I'm more in love with my wife than I've ever been. 
<laughs> cool. And I was like, yeah, that's that's lovely because that wasn't even on the docket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I love that because, you know, it is obviously it's something that probably he overlooked. You know, he just wasn't paying attention. Yeah. And that's so easy to do in, in today's life with so many distractions, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, the piece, and, and this is somewhat related to what you just said, but it's important, is we're not ever perfect. That's the thing. The other part, if we're always in the middle of the journey, then the things that are often overlooked or whatever, we have infinite opportunities to fix and to be humbled and to realize like, oh, I, I, le- I, I left the path for a minute. Let me come back. Yeah, And we are always given that, I mean, look, I, I joke about it all the time. Like sometimes I'll start the journeyman groups with like my own bad dad story, <laughs> right? Because like, there's this thought that people who run groups like this or people who are putting it out there are, like you said, are already at the top of the mountain. Yeah. And my thought about it is, no, I, I'm, I'm circling the middle of the mountain <laughs> on purpose. Yeah. Like, and I'm wavering like between contours. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because, you know, like, yeah, like this morning, I certainly was not as patient with my kid as he was, you know, anxious about school as I should have been, you know, but when he came back from school this afternoon, I made sure to go down and we touched base and I apologized and, and, you know, I owned where I was and we started at a place where we're like, all right, great, let's move forward. And that deepens the relationship, Yeah, right? Like we're always, I mean, I, tell me someone who you've known for 20 years that you've not argued with or disagreed with or whatever. And if that's the case, then it wasn't a very deep relationship, <laughs> right? Yeah. My yeah. son, I plan to know for the next many, many decades. So if we have a huge blowout, I'm okay with that because we have foundations. Yeah. And I love the, strong I, foundation. the idea of apologizing. And that's something that I've been trying to do and apologize fast as well. Like if something, like if I blow up and I'm gr- like, a, like the whole thing for me recently has been grumpy. Like I'm feeling really grumpy right now because it's late. I'm tired. I'm pooped. I've got to go to bed and like you and I go to yeah. bed. But it, when I frame it like that, it, it's much better. And it explains because sometimes I can get a bit short, but I suppose it's yeah. it, 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 when you have that idea of a path and you go oh straight off the path, but you know, I can, I can step back on. It's, it's the direction back onto the path is there. Whereas yes. in this zero-sum game that I think we tend to play out in our minds, it's either, oh, I'm a bad dad right now because I just blew up at my kid. Whereas right. if we give ourselves that leniency and go, oh, no, I just strayed off the path, but I can rectify. I can course correct and, and apologize and say, hey, I, yeah, I wasn't thinking then, straight back on. Absolutely. And frankly, it's, you know, if we to go back to what we said before where the treasure is in the muck, I would say the best dads are the people who do blow up every once in a while and then apologize, right? Like if you were, you know, solid all the time, (laughs) then you don't, yeah, then you don't have any like, you know, opportunities for this growth. Like growth comes, especially in relationship through challenge. And so like, if I didn't argue with anything and it just said yes to everything, or I made them listen out of fear or whatever, then we wouldn't grow as a relationship. But, we wouldn't strengthen that. And what you, what you said then, Jason, is, you know, we don't give the opportunity to model that behavior to our children. So they would just see, this is great. It gives you an, ex, you know, it tells you a great story about if you're not a great dad, that's good because it's a golden opportunity to actually sort of model to your child how you're working towards becoming a better dad. Yes. Whereas if you were the perfect dad, and your kids would just go, oh, man, he's just that's amazing. How come he doesn't have all these emotions that are, you know, this inner turmoil that I feel? And and you don't have that right. learning yes. experience and, and sort of go on the journey with your child. Yeah, that's, that's gold. Yes. And well, and to add to that in a different way is, and, and it's really important, is our socialization as men is to not have lots and lots of feelings and not to be aware of our feelings and not, you know, we're, we're sad, mad or glad basically. Right. And, and mostly just mad. And, you know, if we're, if we're exposing kids to like, I went off the path and then I thought about it and I came back and now I'm feeling grumpy because I'm a little tired. Then we're validating because everyone has that. But if we're, especially having sons for me, if I don't, if I shy away from that, I'm just like, I'm fine. Uh, then I'm teaching them what they should be too. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm basically promoting this sort of 
patriarchal dominating, you know, male culture, that certainly isn't helping, you know, it's certainly not working for us. Yeah. Well, and everyone's walking on eggshells because they know, even though you said, I'm fine, you're so not fine because all your body, your body language, everything's (laughs) saying the opposite. But, um, oh, wow. So what would you say is the first step then for obviously checking out the journeymen as a, as a course, as a, as a group? I mean, what about yes. the, the, the people that, that, that aren't quite ready yet? What would you say? What, what are the first steps on the journey? The journey it's of a thousand miles. <laughs> Was it starts with right. one step? <laughs> it's, a, well, it's, it's a great question. I, I mean, I, I uh, you know, is, is a little bit of self-promotion. I'll say I'm putting, a, I'm beginning and putting a lot of things out on a blog and there's going to be a lot of information there for people. So you can certainly go to our website and there's that. But I, I think, Honestly, I think the first step for anyone taking me and my work completely out of the, the, the equation really is slowing down, slowing down and recognizing that, you know, I said it earlier and I noticed your face, you smiled a little bit, but like the, pe- the people whom we purport to love the most, right? Like our, our kids, our partners, our, you know, whatever, whomever it is, if we slow down and get in a sense of like, well, what's really important to me? Back to that question. What does it say about me? Or what does doing this or saying this say about what I care about most? And 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 hold on to that, right? You hold on to what I care, what are the three, four things you care about most? And then search for them. Like, or how are you acting on the daily to, to express those things? I do have a, a PDF for the 10 fastest ways I've found for men, for fathers to connect with their kids. And, you know, I can send you a link to it, but yeah, that'd be great. I did all of them once I did every single one of them and I, with a stopwatch and it was less than 15 minutes, (laughs) right? 10 different things. And, you know, most of them are one minute or less. And, and it's that sense of like, if I slow down, I know what's important to me. And then I choose smallest unit of action on how to express those things. So like, yeah, you know, it is important to me that my kids laugh. Okay, great. Go online and look up dad jokes <laughs> and every day say one to them or put it in their lunch. One thing. That's all you got to do. Yeah. Like, let's start with these things that where you're living what's important. Yeah. Actually, yeah, we, we did that in the car. I was with my eldest and we just dropped off the two younger ones. And I said, oh, just look up some crap jokes online. Let's let's just reframe. And I think it was after me having a bit of a mini blow up. And she looked up some jokes. <laughs> and it actually made me cry with laughter because the way she yeah. delivered the joke. And I don't know whether she she realized that she just nailed the, the delivery. And it was so good. It was like, and That's I think awesome. it was that reala- realization of, oh my gosh, there's this whole new layer of parenthood that ties back to something I loved so much, which was telling jokes as a kid. Yeah. And I, I hadn't, oh, hadn't that, even that's thought a great of it. story. Yeah. Well, and, and think about this. You just got to tell that to me and anyone who's listening, which solidifies the story as a bookmark in your own life and your own story, right? It's like, oh, shoot. Yeah, let's do more of that. Like, that's a valuable moment in our story. Yeah. And one of the things I read as well was was you making like writing notes in lunch boxes. Can you tell us about that, yes. Jason? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I have done it for their entire life. I write a note, a little love note in the in their lunch boxes, and we go through phases. Sometimes it's just this is your note saying I love you. Sometimes it's a dad joke. Yesterday I put in their note. There is a secret code hidden hidden in this note, and if you find it, you get a prize. <laughs> There, there, there was no secret code, and but the the code, the things that they thought up to try to get the prize was amazing, and we laughed and whatever. And the prize was like I did their dishes for them or something. I don't know, it was something small, but that daily thing. I write funny things. I go like, you know, weird Zen cone like stuff or whatever. And the kids love it. They, they, they're like, Papa's always so metaphorical, you know. And you know, then if they haven't said anything for a long time and. Like, I'm like, are they even reading it anymore? I'll write it on the note. Dear Rika, have you read this note today? <laughs> Love Papa, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's just little actions that they know. You know, my kid's 14. I still make his lunch for him because I love it. Yeah. You know, until he says, I want to make my own lunch, I'll keep doing it because yeah. I love doing it. You that's, know? that's so good, Jason. And <laughs> I, I, I'm, 
are highly sort of aware of time as well because we've taken a lot of your time. So thank you so much, Jason, for sharing your passion and insights. Mm. And thank you for doing the work you do. It's so important. Mm. Well, thank you. And and I I hope this is the beginning of a longer conversation. I'm glad that you and I are getting to know each other. And, and you know, I'll look forward to seeing you on the digital space, but also maybe we'll do a conversation again soon. Yeah, I'd love that. That'd be great, Jason. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Jason Frischman, check out the show notes at thedadmindset.com, where you can also subscribe to the fairly new newsletter that complements this show, which also doubles to remind you when the very next episode is hot off the press, or hot off the mic, or hot off the lips. Uh, That just sounds weird. Anyway, if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon slash Audible, I would endow you with a massive internet traversing hug as it really helps the show. And if you know any friends that could benefit from this discussion, whatever you do, don't share it with them. Keep it all to yourself. You're worth it. Now, I promised at the start of this episode that if you listen to the end of the show, that I'd tell you the joke that Annie told me in the car on the way to school that made me cry with laughter. I was feeling pretty fragile at the time. Anyway, here it is. I told my wife she'd drawn her eyebrows a bit too high. She looked surprised. I doubt I nailed it as well as my daughter did, but it was worth a red hot go. Okay, I'd better stop there. Hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. (laughs) 